Good morning, church. We've had such a wonderful uh, last several weeks, uh, especially last week. Wasn't it a joy to hear the amazing testimonies of God's grace uh, from our brothers and sisters who were baptized? What a, what a joy that was and to share fellowship together. So we've been greatly blessed in recent weeks. And this morning, we're going to return to our study of the book of Isaiah. And we're coming now to the fourth major section of the book, which is chapters 24 through 27. And we'll probably spend a couple weeks uh, in this section. We'll try to cover uh, chapters 24 and 25 this morning. And as we're going to see when we read uh, this passage in a few minutes, this section of the book of Isaiah begins in chapter 24 with a rather terrifying prophecy of the outpouring of the wrath of God. And this outpouring of the wrath of God is going to occur during the tribulation period shortly before the Lord returns. And so chapter 24 is a prophecy about God's outpouring of wrath on this fallen, sinful, and wicked world. We're going to take a look at that prophecy, but before we do, I want to start with a question that is often on people's minds. It's kind of a broader question as we come to a portion of scripture such as this. And the question is this, is God just to pour out his wrath on the world. Scripture clearly teaches God is going to pour out his wrath upon this world. Is God just to do so? As we think about that question, the first thing I want to ask you to think about is the fact that in different times and different circumstances, people can struggle with different questions. In times of peace, of safety, of blessing, and of prosperity, people can often struggle to understand why God would pour out his wrath on the world. But in times of persecution, of brutality, of war, and of suffering, people can struggle with a different question. They can struggle to understand why God does not pour out his wrath on the world. We live here in Kalamazoo in 2023, and we are currently enjoying a level of peace, of safety, of blessing, and of prosperity that few people in few places in few times of history have ever enjoyed. And so, generally speaking, people in circumstances as good as ours are tempted to look around and say, this isn't so bad. Why would God think all of this needs to be destroyed? And so we kind of struggle with the is God just to destroy it question. But let me assure you that if you lived in a different time or a different place, the questions you struggle with might be somewhat different. If you lived in a different place, let's say a ghetto or a slum or under a dictatorship, or if you lived in a different time, let's say the time of the Assyrian invasion in the Old Testament or the reign of Nero in the New Testament or in modern times, the time of the Holocaust, then the question that you struggle to understand might be far different. Instead of wondering why God is going to pour out his wrath on a world that doesn't seem so bad, you would be wondering why he hasn't already poured out his wrath on this fallen and wicked world. So in good times, generally speaking, in good times, people struggle to understand why God would bring it to an end. But in bad times, people struggle to understand why God lets it continue. 
And both questions are addressed in scripture. God knows that these questions will be on people's hearts. In good times, they'll wonder why God would bring it to, the end, to an end. In bad times, they'll wonder why he doesn't bring it to an end, why he allows the wickedness and the misery and the suffering to continue. And scripture addresses both of those questions. But since we do live in good times, if you are struggling to understand the doctrine of the coming wrath of God, I want to remind you that you probably have that struggle because by the grace and kindness of God, you have never experienced the degradation and brutality that human beings are not only capable of, but that which they inevitably do whenever they are not restrained by the force of law. We have seen repeatedly throughout history that whenever human beings are not restrained by the force of law, incredibly mind-blowing brutality and wickedness and misery is always the result. And so if you struggle to understand how God could pour out his wrath on this world, it's probably because you have been sheltered by the grace of God from experiencing the full depths and brutality of human wickedness. But if you were to go and stand in front of the pile of children's shoes at Auschwitz, if you were to have the opportunity to gaze into the hold of the 19th century slave ship and see the chains where people were stacked three deep on one another, or if somehow you were able to get a glimpse in our times of the dismembered corpses of babies that are being hauled out of the Planned Parenthood clinic less than a mile away from us where we sit right now, you might have a far different perspective. If you were to see those things with your own eyes, then you would cry out along with the martyrs of Revelation 6.10, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs, those who have been burned to death, who have been tortured and killed and raped and, and mistreated and cruelly uh, oppressed by the wicked forces of this world, their souls in heaven cry out, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you hold back from judging and avenging our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Of course, in Revelation 6, the answer is given to them that the full number of martyrs hasn't come in and that it is when the full number of martyrs is reached that the wrath will be poured out. The day of judgment is coming and it is just because, as in the days of Noah, the wickedness of the world is great. I want to remind you of what the scripture says both in Old Testament and New about the state of human depravity. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually verses 11 and 12 say the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence God looked on the earth and behold it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth and the New Testament also affirms this state of total depravity in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 when it says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And at the end of chapter 1 it describes human depravity saying that 
Humanity is filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. That is humanity from a moral perspective. And so Romans chapter 3 verse 10 concludes there is none righteous not even one remember when God revealed to Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham is like hey Lord if there's 50 righteous people left in the city would you spare the city for the sake of the 50 righteous and God said if there's 50 righteous I would spare it but there weren't 50 righteous so Abraham says what if there were 40 would you spare it I would spare it for 40 for 30 for Abraham keeps going but there weren't righteous people. So the city was destroyed. Romans 3.10 says, God looks out on the world. He sees that there is none righteous, not even one. It goes on to say, there's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice, what it says is the result of human depravity. It says destruction and misery are in their paths. Why does God judge? Why does he pour out wrath? Because he wants to put an end to the destruction and the misery. You see, God's wrath is not only just, it is compassionate. The only way to end oppression is to deal with the oppressors. The only way to end suffering is to judge the evils that cause it. The only way to establish eternal peace is to defeat the devil and all who have joined his wicked rebellion. That's why in scripture we read something very important. And we, of course, know it's probably one of the most famously quoted verses, right? Where, and we rightly consider important phrases that say God is, right? Like, who is God? Well, God is love. And rightly and gladly, we preach that continually. God is love. But let me share with you another God is statement from Exodus 15.3. It says, God is a warrior. God is a warrior. And those two things are not incompatible. They're actually one and the same. Because God loves, he fights. Yahweh, Exodus 15.3 says, is a warrior. In Exodus 15.7, it says, In the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. This, by the way, was written right after God had wiped out the Egyptian army in the Red Sea in order to save his people. God is a warrior. He fights. He wages war. 
Why? Why does God fight, right? The world wants God to be Santa Claus who doles out gifts. You know, if you're on the naughty list, you might get a little less gifts, but you know, they want God to be Santa Claus. They don't want Yahweh to be a warrior. They don't want him to wage war. They don't want him to have righteous indignation. They don't want him to pour out his wrath. They don't want him to fight. But why does God fight? Exodus 15 continues in verse nine saying, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, my hand will destroy them. And who is the them? It is the people of God. And so Yahweh fights. Simply put, our heavenly father fights to protect those whom he has adopted into his spiritual family. He fights to protect them from those who are seeking to destroy, to enslave, and to oppress them. Jesus said that the enemy comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. The devil is wicked and he is mighty. Therefore, it is our hope. It is our joy. It is good news that Yahweh is a warrior and he fights. Exodus 15, 13 says, in your loving kindness. I want you to notice the connection made between God's loving kindness and his outpouring of wrath. Exodus 15, 13 and following. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Then in verse 16, it says, terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord until the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. Why does he fight? He fights so that his people can pass over, so that he can bring them to his holy habitation where he will reign forever and ever. God fights. Why is God a warrior? He fights to protect his children. The primary purpose of judgment is to prevent Satan, the demons, and the wicked rulers and people whom the devil controls from oppressing and destroying God's people. God's wrath is poured out on the evil forces that, if left unrestrained, would impose a tyranny of unspeakable evil and unending misery on God's people forever. You do understand, don't you, that while things around you may look pretty good, you have a mortal enemy, the most wicked being in the universe, Satan, and a whole host of demons whose purpose is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And if you did not have Yahweh, the mighty warrior, to protect you, you would be a slave and the victim of unspeakable evil, unending misery, and the most horrific form of tyranny possible to imagine forever. That's why the doctrine of divine judgment can accurately be described as the doctrine of divine self-defense. God fights for his own. 
He pours out his wrath to protect his children, his people. Ever since Satan and a third of the angels rebelled, a war has been raging. On one side is a loving God and the holy angels. On the other side is Satan, the demons, and their hateful quest to kill, to steal, to destroy, to leave destruction and misery in their paths. That's why Yahweh fights. He fights to protect his own from the cruelty of the devil. By the way, this means that those who are still on Satan's side are subject to the wrath of God. There is a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between the prince of peace and the one whom the New Testament calls the prince of the power of the air. On whose side are you? If you are on the Lord's side, you are subject to the wrath of the devil. If you are on the devil's side, you are subject to the wrath of God, for this is war. By the way, God did not start this war. God did not start this war. But he will finish it. He will conquer. He will utterly defeat evil, and his judgment will be just. And it is his compassion towards his children that demands the outpouring of his wrath upon Satan, upon the demons, and all those who belong to the kingdom of darkness. And that is the message of Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. This section is going to reveal to us that the outpouring of God's wrath is coming, and it is coming in order to save his people. Let's begin our study. Look at Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 3. This is a prophecy of the outpouring of God's wrath in the tribulation period. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. In other words, your status, your money, your place in society will not shield you from this coming wrath. Rich and poor alike, powerful and insignificant alike, all alike will be subject to this wrath of God. Verse three, the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled for the Lord has spoken this word. These verses are very clear. The outpouring of God's wrath is coming. It will happen. And it says the word of the Lord has been spoken. The Lord has spoken this word. After announcing the inevitability of this outpouring of God's wrath, Isaiah explains why it is coming. Why it is coming. Look at verses four through six. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few are left. I want you to notice what is said at the beginning of verse 5. Because there's a phrase which gives the main reason for the coming of God's wrath. It says, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. 
The English Standard Version translates this as the earth is defiled by its inhabitants or you could say profaned by its inhabitants. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants. So I'm going to speak a little tongue-in-cheek here. Turns out, according to this passage, that the liberals are actually right. Because they say and rightly so, that cataclysmic disasters which will affect the whole earth are coming. And these cataclysmic disasters are coming, they say, because of human-caused pollution. So far, they have it right. Where do they get it wrong? The pollution which causes the cataclysmic terrors of the tribulation period is not environmental pollution, it is moral pollution. We have been dumping far too much evil into God's creation. Look again at verses 5 and 6. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgress laws violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, for that reason, a curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Now, I wanna give a little bit of, just kind of zoom out and address this question a little bit of, of the environmental question. I want to remind you that in Genesis chapter 2, God assigned Adam to tend and keep the Garden of Eden. He was to tend and keep God's creation. Therefore, being good stewards of God's creation is an important Christian virtue. It is important. To deny that human beings have a responsibility for good stewardship of the earth or to claim that the things we do have no effect at all on natural ecosystems is not good theology. It runs afoul of the creation mandate in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when God commanded Adam to keep and to tend the creation. Therefore, as biblically informed citizens, we should be supportive of reasonable, common sense, scientifically sound measures to ensure that careless practices and greedy people do not misuse and abuse God's creation. You see, because of the doctrine of human depravity, we understand that if left unrestrained, careless people or greedy people would misuse and abuse the natural resources that God has given and that harm would come to others because of it. And so it is a Christian virtue to personally practice and to advocate in policy for good and reasonable and scientifically informed measures to ensure that careless practices and greedy people do not misuse and abuse God's creation. However, look again at Isaiah 24, verse 4. Why does the earth mourn and wither? Why? What is wrong with the earth? The earth mourns and withers. Why does the world fade and wither? Why? Verse 5, the earth is polluted by its inhabitants. And the answer given here is that this is not environmental pollution. It is moral pollution. Satan is a good liar. He's an excellent deceiver. He knows 
that he can't hide two things from us. He can't hide the fact that the world is under a curse. He cannot hide the fact that cataclysmic disasters are coming. So he has to give an alternate explanation. He tells people that the curse on this world is not the result of sin, it is the result of CO2. Now CO2 may be a problem, but it is not the cause of the curse. Furthermore, he tells people that salvation from the cataclysmic disasters that are indeed coming is by recycling, not repentance. Again, don't misunderstand me. As I said earlier, good environmental stewardship is indeed a noble endeavor and something that does have its proper place. But I want you to be aware that Satan often distracts us from the main thing. He deceives by distraction. He diverts our attention from that which is most important to something of much lesser importance. He wants people to be distracted from the real reason the earth mourns and withers, which is the pollution of sin. What is his goal? He wants people to be so focused on saving the world by drinking through soggy paper straws (laughs) that they ignore the pollution of sin which is in their own hearts and which they spew out every day into the world. He wants them to not even think about their need to repent of how they're polluting the world by sin before it's too late. Verse five is clear. What kind of pollution has brought a curse on this world and what will cause the cataclysmic disasters that are coming? They transgressed laws. They violated statutes. They broke the everlasting covenant. These are three types of moral evil. First, they transgress laws. This refers to doing that which God has forbidden. God sets a law. He says, thou shalt not, and we transgress that law and do it anyway. We transgress laws. Second, it says they violated statutes. This refers to ignoring what God has commanded us to do. He gives us statutes, things which we are to adhere to and do and fulfill, and we violate those. We ignore them. Third, it says they broke the everlasting covenant. This refers to humanity's rebellion against God, their allegiance to the rebellion of Satan and their rejection of Christ as Lord. They broke the everlasting covenant. And so the outpouring of God's wrath is coming because of the pollution on the earth caused by its inhabitants in their moral degradation. The same reason the flood came on the earth is the same reason the tribulation judgments will come on the earth. The New Testament says the world once was destroyed by water, the next time it will be by fire. And the reason for the destruction will be the same. It is the moral pollution of sin. Verse six. Therefore a curse devours the earth and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few people are left. I want to ask you now to turn to verses 7 through 13 and notice that the next few verses return to the topic of immersive merriment which we talked about in chapter 5 immersive merriment here you have a curse which is on the earth because of sin 
and judgment which is coming, how does wicked humanity respond? By distracting ourselves through immersive merriment so that we don't have to think about it. Millions of people, including many who were raised in Christian homes, have decided to ignore God, to ignore the reality of death, to ignore the reality of impending judgment, and to ignore it by distracting themselves with immersive merriment. They're just going to party their way past any consideration of these realities. They're going to distract themselves with revelry. They're going to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They are partying their way to the abyss. But just like a rebellious teenager's drinking party ends abruptly the second the cops or a parent shows up, the wicked revelry of the whole world will abruptly stop when the outpouring of God's wrath begins. There's going to come a day when the party will be over. That's what verses 7 through 13 talks about. The new wine mourns, the vine decays, all the merry-hearted sigh, the gaiety of tambourines ceases, the noise of revelers stops, the gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. Five times in these verses, it says that the drinking of wine, the sensuous revelry, and the drunken singing of the wicked world will end. When God's wrath begins to be poured out, the party will be over and the consequences will come. And by the way, when the first part of the tribulation period, I think, is a time of great partying amongst the wicked. Why? Because the Antichrist has risen to power. He has established a worldwide dictatorship. They have peace. They're in control. They're imposing their will. All of those you know, stupid, backwards, wicked people who still believe in God are being killed and imprisoned and you know, barred from buying or selling anything. Everyone's being forced to take the mark of the beast. And for the wicked, it seems like they're about to live in utopia. So they're partying. But when the parties of the followers of the Antichrist are suddenly stopped by the outpouring of God's wrath in the second half of the tribulation, then the righteous rejoice because it means the terrible and cruel persecution that they were enduring at the hands of their laughing and partying oppressors is almost over. They're being oppressed while the wicked party. Then that switches. Look at verses 14 through 16. They, that is, the righteous remnant, raise their voices, they shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. So the righteous rejoice because they see that their defender has come. They've been being cruelly oppressed by the Antichrist, but now the wrath of God is being poured out on the Antichrist and all who follow him and they understand that God has come. God is pouring out his wrath to save them and that the second coming of Christ is drawing nigh. And so they rejoice. 
But notice at the end of verse 16 that Isaiah says he is personally unable to join in the rejoicing. He says at the end of verse 16, but I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me. The treacherous deal treacherously and the treacherous deal very treacherously. Apparently God had revealed to Isaiah that he would not live to see the coming day of the Lord. And so Isaiah knew that he personally must yet suffer persecution at the hands of the treacherous they will be very treacherous towards him and in fact we know that eventually he was killed and sawn in two. It's kind of a hard thing to know. To know that there's coming a day when the Lord will deal with the wicked but to know that you won't see that day you'll have to endure yet the rage of the devil and of the wicked people who do his bidding. That's a tough message to know. Sometimes the Lord gives those types of messages. He gave such a message to Peter after the resurrection. Tough to know that you will be martyred. But though the treacherous would eventually kill Isaiah, and though since then they have killed hundreds of thousands of other believers, it's going on in our day right now, Though so many more will be martyred before the day of the Lord, justice, the scripture says, is coming. In verse 17, there are three similar sounding Hebrew words and they appear with what Oswald calls pounding assonance. Pounding verbal similarity. They're the Hebrew words pachad, pachath, and pach. Terror, pit, and a snare are coming upon the wicked. Look at verses 17 through 22. Terror and pit and snare confront you, O inhabitant of the earth. Then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are opened and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder. The earth is split through. The earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard and it totters like a shack for its transgression is heavy upon it and it will fall never to rise again. The weight of sin is so heavy the world becomes like a shack which can't stand under the weight and it collapses. Scripture says in the tribulation period that the wicked people will beg the mountains to fall on them to cover them from the wrath of God and then look at verses 21 and 22 so it will happen in that day and notice that there's that end times phrase again it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth they will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison And after many days, they will be punished. This is clearly an end times prophecy. The host of heaven, which refers to the fallen angelic host, the demons, as well as the kings on the earth who do their bidding, will be punished. God's going to pour out judgment on the demonic hosts and of the human rulers who do their bidding. And in verse 22, there's a very remarkably specific prophecy about what happens to them. And it corresponds perfectly to the prophecies in the book of Revelation. Notice that in verse 22 it says that they will, quote, be confined to prison and after many days they will be punished. 
we are given additional details of this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, which teaches that when Christ returns, Satan will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years, or as Isaiah calls it, for many days. But it is not until the final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and receives his eternal punishment. So let me read to you from Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, which gives us additional details of the prophecy given by Isaiah. Revelation 21 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now every time I come across this verse, I want to pause and just remind people, we don't bind Satan. And we don't bind Satan now. Who binds Satan? An angel. When is Satan bound? In that day. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and he bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So you have the imprisonment of Satan in the abyss during the thousand year reign of Christ followed by his eternal punishment in the lake of fire at the end of the millennium. And that is exactly what Isaiah is describing when he writes, quote, they will be confined in prison and after many days they will be punished. The specificity, consistency, and accuracy of biblical prophecy is truly remarkable. Next, I want you to notice from Isaiah 24, verse 23, what Isaiah says will happen after Satan has finally received his eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Verse 23 goes on to say, then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. This verse is describing now the eternal state, New Jerusalem, when the sun and the moon will no longer be needed for the Lord will reign in New Jerusalem and his glory will give light to the eternal city. Listen to Revelation 21 verses 22 through 27 which is describing New Jerusalem I saw no temple in it for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it right so the sun and the moon are ashamed in the sense of 
they're no longer needed. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life." Will you be able to enter that city? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? This is the question. What is the proper response for believers to these glorious truths? Well, chapter 25, verse 1 gives us the proper response. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. For you have worked wonders Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. I love that phrase, with perfect faithfulness. As we read these ancient prophecies, let us remember that God will fulfill them with perfect faithfulness. And these plans, Isaiah says, were formed long ago. And he wrote that they were formed long ago when he was living. That's 2,700 years ago. These plans were already ancient by the time Isaiah wrote in 700 BC. So what we are reading on the pages in front of us are the sovereign plans of God made ages ago about what he will do in the ages to come. So from the ages past to the ages to come, God works wonders and he fulfills his plans with perfect faithfulness. Hallelujah. This is good news. It's a reason to join Isaiah in worship and thanksgiving. Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Isaiah then goes on to remind us that for these glorious things to happen, the enemies of God must be defeated. Look again at chapter 25, verses two through five. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. Why? Why does God's wrath come? And here again is the doctrine of divine self-defense written in Isaiah 25, verse four. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. In between you and the ruthlessness of Satan and his demons stands a wall, an unmovable wall, and that wall is the protection of God the Almighty. All the wrath of the devil beats like raindrops against the wall of God's protection of his own. And verse five ends by announcing the good news that the song of the ruthless is silenced. Look at verse five. Like heat and drought, you subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. There will come a time in which all war, oppression, and ruthlessness will be over. The Prince of Peace will establish peace by defeating evil. 
The Prince of Peace will establish peace by defeating evil. And then what happens next is truly glorious, and this is what I wanted to conclude with. Look at verses six through nine of chapter 25. The Lord of hosts, this Yahweh who's a warrior, the God of armies, right? When it says the Lord of hosts, this is, he's saying the Lord of the heavenly armies. Yahweh the warrior, the Lord of hosts, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. People from every tribe and tongue and nation will be brought to a lavish banquet on this mountain, Mount Zion. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. What is the covering? What is the veil which is wrapped around the world? What is this dark veil covering the world? It is death. Look at the next verse. It says, he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. This is glorious. And by the way, this passage is cited in Revelation chapter 21 verses one through five, which reads as follows. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a citation of Isaiah chapter 25. And there will no longer be any death. It's also a reference to Isaiah 25. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And notice the parallel between that phrase, right, for these words are faithful and true, and what we read in Isaiah 25, verse 9, or verse 8, when it says that he will remove death for all time, wipe away tears from all faces, for the Lord has spoken. There's finality in that, glorious finality. How glorious this will be. And so we come the conclusion in verse 9 and it will be said in that day behold this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us this is the Lord for whom we have waited let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation we've been waiting and the day finally came Beloved, these glorious promises are what we're waiting for. We are waiting for him and we're waiting for that day and we're waiting for that lavish banquet and the wiping away of all tears and the removal of death forever. We are waiting for him. We're waiting for that day and that day is coming. It's what we're waiting for as we endure the trials and tribulations and temptations of this fallen world. It's what we're waiting for as we groan under the incessant weight and burden of our own struggles with sin. It's what we're waiting for as we bury our loved ones. This is the dawn that we're waiting for through countless long, dark nights of the soul. 
This is what we wait for. And so my encouragement is to the weary souls. Wait a little longer. The night is almost over. The dawn is coming. By the eyes of faith, can you gaze past the darkness to that faint glow on the horizon which tells you that the dawn is coming? Fix your hope, John says, fully on the grace to be given to you at his appearing. You may not be able to see it yet, but it's almost here. Soon your battles with sin will be over forever. Soon your chronic pain will be fully and forever gone. Soon the tears of a broken home or of the trauma that you've endured will be wiped away by a nailed scarred hand. Soon, all of your oppression and all of your reproach will be removed. And you can know for sure this will happen because at the end of verse 8 it says, For the Lord has spoken. He has spoken, and it will be. It's the second time that phrase, the Lord has spoken, has appeared in our section. The first was in regard to judgment. You can be sure that judgment is coming because the Lord has spoken this word. And you can be sure that the salvation of the believers is coming because the Lord has spoken. Two things are certain because the Lord has spoken. The judgment of the wicked and the salvation of all believers. And by the way, those two great promises are intricately connected. The judgment of the wicked is necessary to secure eternal peace, eternal righteousness, and eternal joy for God's children. And that's why I have said that the doctrine of God's wrath could also be called the doctrine of divine defense. Yahweh is a warrior who fights so that his people can pass over to the promised land. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to, come to repentance. But he will fight so that his people can pass over. God extends mercy to all who will repent. Even in chapter 27, he will appeal to his enemies twice saying, let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. That's chapter 27, verse 5. And what does he do with us? Well, he sends us out into the world as ambassadors to plead with people to be reconciled to God. But in the end, he will fight. He will pour out his wrath so that his people can pass over. God is a God of compassion. And that is why he must also be a God of justice who pours out righteous wrath on the evil that pollutes the earth and brings so much misery. The misery caused by evil must be put to an eternal end. So let us praise him for who he really is. He is a God of love and therefore he is a God of wrath. Lord, we praise you because in your loving kindness you are a warrior. Lord, if you allowed Satan and the demonic hosts to remain unpunished, if you allowed those who have joined in their wicked and diabolical rebellion to remain unpunished, Lord, you would not be loving or kind, for then the misery and destruction of evil would continue forever. So Lord, we thank you that you are a God of love and therefore a God of wrath. 
May we be diligent to share the good news of salvation from the wrath to come to all who are still in the kingdom of darkness. Lord, we say with Isaiah, we praise you, O God, for you work wonders. The plans you've made long ago, you fulfill with perfect faithfulness. For this we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Even now-